Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Happy New Year. We are here, and I want to take this moment to thank you so much for listening to this podcast, for sharing this show with your friends and family and really helping the show grow and spread the stories and messages we bring on here. As you know, there are certain topics that I keep having on the show over and over. One of them is the divorce issue. And the other one that keeps coming back is abuse in the firm community. And I know abuse happens everywhere but we need to be proactive as a community to do more for survivors and for our children. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast, so make sure to check out the other podcasts on the network. The link is in the show notes. And I had our guest, Dr. Michael Solomon, send in a little message to connect our episode to Yom Kippur and the time that we're in right now. So here we go. That's your request. An idea that, I, that has a lot of traction is that Yom Tov, holiday time, is a very difficult time for survivors, often because they don't get support from the people around them who haven't been in their situation. Some of them, many of them, are afraid to follow the traditional services. They're afraid to go to shul. They feel reluctant to be seen in public. They feel guilty for no reason. There's another angle that has to do more with how certain holidays bring up certain emotions in people. If Yom Kippur is a time of teshuva, of repentance, then people who haven't had validating experience with or knowing that their abuser has been taken to task and is still being supported by the community or simply hasn't been, uh, the police haven't been able to build a case against them, why should they believe in repentance if it doesn't work for the other people who have to, the abusers who have to admit that they did something wrong? Welcome, friends, Stans, back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Dr. Michael Solomon, and we are here to discuss yet again topics and issues of sexual abuse in the firm community in more depth with you. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It feels odd to smile when we're tackling such a complicated and devastating issue. Okay, so let's start off how we start off every episode. Tell us a little bit about yourself, religiously and professionally. Religiously, I, uh, I guess people call me modern Orthodox, but I think that that's a misnomer. First of all, I don't like those kinds of labels. They're generally meaningless. Second of all, I went to pretty right-wing yeshivas all my life, so I think classifying me in any way other than from is, is just a, a misnomer. As far as my professional standing, I am a psychologist for many years now. I'm a fellow, senior fellow of the American Psychological Association. I've received a presidential citation for my work in this particular area of sexual abuse. I've written a book called Sexual Abuse in the Jewish Community, um, finished a documentary about this about two and a half years ago. The trailer is available online, but we haven't yet secured a platform to show it. 
And part of that is due to the fact that a couple of these platforms like Netflix and HBO are kind of concerned that it may be a little too political, which I don't understand because, you know, if they can show unorthodox or, or even rough diamonds, then they can certainly show something that's uh, realistic and educational. But, you know, we'll find a platform and we'll get it out there at some point. I'm also working on another book for the general public on the topic of abuse. And at this point, I'm about three quarters of the way through that. I lecture internationally on this topic and related issues. I don't just do therapy with people who have been abused. I, I do research. I write. I work with people who have personality disorders and anxiety and depression. And that's who I am. Well, that was very thorough, and I'm happy you brought all of these pieces in. I do want to add your book on the Shidduch crisis, because you've done other things as well. Yeah, actually, that's true. We, we actually completed a, another round of research into Shidduch issues, and uh, some of those articles are being published in professional journals. And we are ju also just starting to embark on a study of what causes divorce in, in, from people what the divorce rates really are, and so on and so forth. I mean, we don't have to get into that at mm -hmm. this point, but we are looking into it. It's nice to have an idea of who you are. You are very strong-willed in terms of looking ahead, thinking of our community at large, doing research, and actively working on making our community a safer and better, more productive place. So I would like to focus today and by the way, the first time I've heard you speak was on the podcast after Mendy Pellin's interview with Gershon and your analysis on his interview. I'm curious, when was that done? No, no. So I want to clarify something because people have made all kinds of assumptions. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about that. I don't know when he recorded the interview, but I believe it was about Seven or eight six months years. ago. Oh, I heard it was six years ago. No, no. Seven or eight months was when he recorded the interview. No. I, see, again, people are making assumptions. I think it was about seven or eight months ago, but I didn't want to comment based on a video because videos can be altered. So I actually met with the person and then I was interviewed for my commentary on what I saw. That was done back in February, I believe it was, of this past year. So it was... Um, only a few months ago that I actually spoke about it. Was there anything else you wanted to add from behind the scenes of doing that? Yeah. The interesting thing about it is from a, an academic perspective, I think it was extremely educational. From a survivor's perspective, I think it was triggering. And anybody who asked me, I told them not to view the abuser's uh, interview, I don't think it would be helpful. And I had some recommendations that uh, the interview be be shortened in some ways, and, and I think it was. Uh, I never really watched it. I, I just, I don't trust anything that I can, can't see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears. Mm -hmm. So he didn't send it to you for approval before he released it, correct? Correct. How did you get into this field originally? I know we're going... A little backwards here. No, it's okay. I, uh, when I started in the field, I was working as a, an intern. And uh, a young girl came in 
to the clinic. And she was from a from family, and I was the only from therapist there. And so they they assigned me to her, and she uh, she was having trouble with school. She was having trouble with friends, and I basically started to work with her. And ultimately, she told me that something happened to her on a school bus, and the bus driver had done it. And that was my first exposure to something like this. But then at the same time, I was also working in a with a group of senior citizens who many had lost their spouses, and they had requested from the administration to run some sort of a uh, kind of a sexual survivors group, how to handle their their issues about not having a sexual relationship in their lives anymore. And a nurse who was a coach worked the program with me. We were exposed to certain things that we were told by some of these women. One of them, in fact, I wrote about this, one of them said, I feel like a refrigerator. People open me and use me whenever they want to get something out of me. And I didn't immediately understand what that was, but after a few days of thinking about it, it dawned on me that this woman was probably abused when she was younger and maybe throughout her life. And so I took her aside at some point and I asked her and she, she confirmed that that was the case. So I, I had exposure to this when I was an intern, but I'm a, a generally inquisitive type of person, and I, I kind of follow hints from people. A, a lot of other therapists don't do that. They wait for what they call disclosure, when somebody gives them information to use. I, I do that, but I also kind of probe a little bit more than the average therapist might. That's fascinating. And how do you go from there to doing this movie? And I I want to know more about the intentions of doing this movie. So, you know, when I wrote the book, Abuse in the Jewish Community, I was attacked. I even got death threats from people. From who? Some very, from very prominent people. I'm not going to mention names. Leaders of firm communities? Leaders of the firm communities, yes. Not survivors? Not survivors. On the contrary, I, I got a lot of positive feedback from survivors. And... I was threatened, you know, things like your kids will never get a shidduch or, or we'll throw you out of every shul or we make, make sure nobody ever goes to see you professionally. Nonsense like that. And it didn't really bother me. <clears throat> what bothered me was I kept getting my mail, my email box was constantly inundated by these people. So at one point after discussing with my, was my Rav, but also my Chavrusa for many years, I don't know what to do about this. He said, you know, tell them that you're going to post it. Because, you know, once anything hits the internet, it's not confidential anymore, so they can't ask for confidentiality. So I did that, and suddenly a lot of these very prominent individuals stopped texting me. So that worked very nicely for me, and they stopped. I still get occasional negative reactions from prominent people, but, you know, being in this space for so long and trying to get people to understand how much of a problem this is, I've started to get respect from a lot of different areas. And we'll get to the movie in a second. I, just as an example, there's this very Hasidish community that was having an issue. And this happened more than once over the past couple of years. And I got a call from one of the leaders of the community, uh, maybe a Dayan in the community, who said, I, I, you can't have my name associated with this, but I'm, I'm going to send someone to you from the community who's going to organize a, a uh, meeting. I expect community members to be there. I want you to speak to them about what they have to do to protect their children. 
And so, you know, there's been this movement towards understanding that the there has to be an intervention and there are ways to do it properly. So that has, over the years, kind of made the uh, the motivation stronger to find different networks to be able to present what we know about this problem and to deal with it more effectively. Turns out that I have a, a friend that I grew up with who he's, uh, he lives in Israel. I know him for 55 years, maybe. He has a son who is a documentarian. He does movies in Israel, but also internationally. And I was mentioning to him that someday I'd like to do a documentary about this. And I know enough people. I know survivors who'd be willing to speak on camera. I know police detectives. I know district attorneys who deal with this. I know attorneys who have sued individuals and organizations who are abusers. And someday I'd like to do a documentary. And he said, so let's do it. And so we did. It was finished about two and a half years ago. And again, we just need to find the right net, the right platform for it. Who is the target audience for this movie? Anyone and everyone. Even though this is an issue that's focused on the from world, the issues are the same in just about every community. If you, if you are familiar with the, the movie Spotlight, which came out a few years ago and won some sort of a award, it's about the Roman Catholic Church and how they hit abusers. My office is on the border between the five towns and what's called the, Roman, the, uh, the Catholic Diocese of Rockville Center. So I don't just see from people. We see people who are from in the Catholic world from Catholics. And many of the, the priests who are mentioned in that movie were seen in my office over the years. So uh, I, I thought it was time for us to do a, something that was not just a, a movie for the masses, but something was more focused on what we know within our world and what happens and, and to be more aware of it and to put it out there. I'd like to hear more analysis from you because this Mendy Pellin episode that came out on Tishabov, around Tishabov, there there was so much conversation around it on different podcasts, and I learned a lot of terms like minor attracted people and things like abusers will find more leniency or more room halakhically to abuse children than to spill seed in vain, and they will prefer to take it out on someone else, even if there's no consent, especially on a child, because there's that power dynamic automatically. So raising these issues, are there unique circumstances in the firm community that make this potentially more dense of an issue, more dangerous? So every community finds that they have abusers in them. There isn't a community that doesn't. It's hard to know the percentage, although people talk about 5% within a community would be abusers of one sort or another. I also want to clarify something. People throw around the term pedophiles. Pedophiles are people who are attracted to young bodies. That doesn't mean that they're abusers. They could be, but they don't necessarily become abusers. And I also want to make it clear that the research is abundantly clear that Someone who's gay doesn't become homosexual because they were abused. One has nothing to do with the other. That's, that's pretty clear. Those things are clear. What we do know is that within each community, 
you will find individuals who can rationalize their behavior to make it seem like it's okay to abuse. So within the from world, you'll find people like this individual that Mendy Palin interviewed who will rationalize halachic reasons why it's okay if, if a child is below a certain age, if they give consent and how they give consent and all the issues that are really, I mean, maybe they were halachically appropriate in the time of the Gemara, but even then I'm not so sure because, you know, there are all kinds of chuvas about whether or not they apply and how they apply. But you can find abusers in the, in the Catholic community who rationalize their abuse based on whatever their holy writ might be. It's just an excuse that they use. It's a rationalization, not based on, on reality. They want to feel power over younger people, and they want to be able to manipulate them sexually, so they'll use whatever excuse they can find. And, and that's what we see in, in the Mendy Palin interview situation. And that's why one of the things I said was that he was very narcissistic. Yeah, he's only thinking about himself. And people who are narcissistic don't really care about others. But just to cover their tracks, they look for an excuse. Okay, so you touched upon this a little, but I'd like to go a little deeper. You said that HBO and Netflix weren't interested because it's either too specific or shed a bad light on the Jewish community and they're not interested in that. Can we go more into that? Because I, I would think the Jewish community would be stopping you from going to Netflix, not Netflix. Netflix is dying for something like this. That, that's what I would think. I, I, as would I. Look, I, I don't know anything about movies. I, I've got a bit of an education along the way. So I know about making the movie. I know about production issues. I don't know anything about distribution. We have a, a wonderful a co-producer who... Uh, hired a distribution company, and the distribution director said that they're coming back and saying it's too, in quotes, political. Is it possible that Netflix is feeling pressure from the from community to not show it? Uh, I guess that's a possibility. I, I don't know. I, I asked my co-producer to see if he can figure out some more, and maybe we can find a way around it. But I, I guess we'll find out with time. It is kind of strange. This is exactly uh, a very, it fits the criterion for the amount of time that a documentary would run. A one limited series, one uh, show documentary. We were careful to do that. I mean, we had about 60 hours worth of, of tape from people. We, we narrowed it down to about a little over an hour so that it would fit those requirements. And we were hoping that if, if it was picked up quickly, that we would use additional tape to kind of add to it if the, if they wanted us to do that. I just don't understand what the concern was. I wish I could give you a better answer than that. Maybe HBO is not the place for it, but Netflix would surely grab something like this. And they've Vice. been grabbing things like this. Right. Yeah. Uh, Hulu. Hulu, I'm told, is looking for things like this. Maybe the distribution company didn't handle it properly. Maybe we need to find a different distribution company. Actually, we have a meeting later this week to discuss other options, and we'll see. Is Vice part of HBO, or Vice is its own thing? It's, it's owned by the same parent company, I believe. We'll see. I mean, there are so many platforms. 
Yeah, thanks. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had a, a, a documentary on abuse several years ago that I was interviewed for, and I was told that they were looking for more information on it, but they didn't pick this up either. So, so I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll have to figure that out. Okay. I'll keep pushing a little deeper. Because of movies like My Unorthodox Life or the shows and Unorthodox, do you have concern that this will cause more anti-Semitism? Why are we airing our dirty laundry for the whole world to see? That's why I asked you who your target audience is. I, see, that's the thing. I don't, was. I, I don't think it's airing dirty laundry. On the contrary, I think it's, it's kind of moving, maybe even a little painful to watch. But I think there's a great deal of an educational component to it that applies to all communities. And we wrap it up with one of our survivors talking about what needs to be done in order to protect your children. And that applies to all communities. So I, I really believe that this would not be shedding a, a negative light on the from community at all. Just the opposite. I think it shows that we're willing to air our dirty laundry in a way that's educational and, and use it to be more productive and protective. In, in my interview with Shalom Leifer, have you heard of him? Sure. We've communicated. He's mentioned how a lot of Jewish community leaders are not on board. They would rather protect their own organizations or the people within their organizations than protect the children or community members. Do you see things shifting? And would you agree with that? That's what he said. As a general rule, that's the case. But it's also true for all organizations, not even Jewish ones, not even religious ones. Every organization is seeking to protect itself. I'm assuming he was a Dayan who contacted me most recently. He would never be associated with his program that I gave. And there were about 400 people who came to this event that I spoke at. But the fact that 400 people were encouraged to come means that they're trying to do something within the community. Whether or not it has the label of the leaders of the community, that's an issue, but it doesn't have to be the issue, as long as people are becoming more aware. The truth is, I, I think I'm at freedom to say this at this point, I've been involved with putting together a protocol that is designed for shuls, synagogues, I don't know your, your, your listenership, to look at and protect the shul members from abuse of all kinds. And it was, it was approved very recently by the RCA and is being dis distributed to all the rabbis of the RCA. I'm not at liberty to release the actual protocols, I don't think, but I know that it's gone out to all the rabbinic members of the Rabbinical Council of America. So mm -hmm. some organizations are starting to make some serious moves, but organizations seek to protect themselves because they don't want to be sued, they don't want to get a bad reputation. If you look at the Catholic Church, Several dioceses in the United States that have been sued have declared bankruptcy because they don't want to have to pay legal fees anymore, or they claim that they don't have the money to pay the legal fees that they have to pay, or to reimburse the, the survivors for their therapy needs. So organizations support themselves first, but that's a natural reaction. But if we train the community, if we educate the community, if we are involved with the community as to what they need to do, more and more organizations are going to have to 
fall in line and do what they have to do. So in, you know, the other side of the coin may be being more public about support of survivors from the community. So the more vocal they are about it, by default, they are coming out against abusers. You know, it's interesting when, when, when advocates for survivors come out for survivors, they're always attacked by someone or some group. When survivors come out on their own, they are attacked, but more clandestinely. They're more, the attacks are more secretive. You'll see postings on, you know, some, I, I don't go to, to Twitter anymore, but you'll see some postings on certain places talking about how certain survivors are, are making it up or aren't telling the truth or whatever. This is a very complex area because you sometimes see attorneys who, who actually, in, in all their desire to be protective of and, and, and help survivors, sometimes miss what the survivors actually need. And so they're going after organizations without necessarily understanding the needs of the survivors. And, and I mean, it's hard to really explain without giving concrete examples, but because I, I'm involved in some of these situations, I'm, I, I just can't, for confidentiality reasons, describe too many of these situations. But just suffice it to say that there are a lot of complex issues here, but I would always encourage survivors to to report what happened to them, even if it took them years to, to deal with it. And I would always encourage that they go to the police and report and also find an attorney to help them, but attorneys who are experienced in dealing with this. I, I know I might have thrown you with that. <laughs> no, also, you mentioned their needs may be different from what the lawyer's intentions are, what they see as victory. And I'm assuming they want validation or an apology or covering the financial burden of therapy of their entire lives. Is, am I missing anything? No, that's all true. But when they go about it in a way when they're more interested in suing the organization than they are in understanding what actually happened to the individual, how they processed it, how long it took for them to report it and why, then we're the, they're missing what the core feelings of the survivor may be. I mean, for example, without being specific, if, I, if I'm speaking to a survivor who was abused 40 years ago, and that's not uncommon. I'll hear from people 40, 50 years ago that they were abused. What they've done is they've managed to somehow either make a life and, and cope with it, or somehow been overwhelmed by it and never been dealt with properly, and they've had all kinds of problems over the years. Uh, attorneys aren't trained to deal with that properly. They somehow miss that, and they're looking for a certain type of uh, a legal argument that they can make that sometimes misses the fact that, okay, this person was abused 40 years ago. They've been in therapy for 40 years. No organization is going to pay for therapy for 40 years. So let's find a way to deal with this in a way that makes sense for everybody. You know, those are the kinds of issues that sometimes arise. Mm -hmm. I heard one of the comments on one of the podcasts, I believe it was, it was from Shauna Aronson. She said how perhaps the safest place for the abusers is to stay in their communities where they are already identified as abusers instead of kicking them out and then being anonymous in new communities to 
start all over again. Interesting point. I, uh, Speaking of protecting our communities and creating protocols. Right. So I did a, a podcast with Yaki Horowitz, Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, uh, a few months ago. And I made the point, and I continue to make this point everywhere I speak, abusers groom their, their targeted victims. Their targeted victims are not just the individuals they abuse. It's the community. They get the community to see them a certain way. They try to be very uh, comforting to people. They try to be very helpful to people. They try to be known in the community as nice people. Um, in the past, for example, you'll see uh, coaches on teams or rabbeim in schools saying, I'm going to keep your kid after the program and I'm going to teach them and I'm going to show them and I'm going to drive them home. And, and parents will say, hey, that's a really good individual taking special interest in my child. That's a red flag. That's a red flag parents need to be aware of. From the sense of the community, that's somebody who's seen as a, an upstanding individual willing to volunteer their time more. So yeah, Sean is right. They, they are victimizing a community. They are comfortable in their community. But once they are outed in their community and they're not protected anymore, in the from world, they're quick to run to Israel. In fact, there was an article, uh, an editorial by the editorial board of Haaretz. Now, I know it's very left-wing newspaper, but they are on target. The editorial was called, I hope I get it correct, Israel's ultra-Orthodox politicians support sex offenders. According to the latest estimate, there are about 200 individuals who are known sex offenders in the United States and Canada who are now in Israel. They just picked themselves up and went there, and they're basically being protected. And if you want an example of that, Malka Leifer was a perfect example. She was protected for close to 15 years in Israel by members of the Knesset who were from people who are making excuses for her, saying that she was mentally incompetent to stand trial or shouldn't be extradited to Australia. But there are many, many other cases. And Israel doesn't mind having this issue? having everyone else's remainings, everything that's flushed out of all the other communities, land in Eretz HaKodesh? Yeah. I, I can't answer for the government of Israel. I can tell you that a lot of therapists in Israel are pulling their hair out over this issue. It's a really upsetting type of situation. I actually communicated with Shana Aronson last week about someone who um, was brought to my attention just last week abused at least one person that I'm aware of here, and then they went to, to Israel before they were reported, knowing that they were going to be reported. And all we can do at this point is, is people in Israel to keep an eye, eye out for these individuals. And, and you know, if, if the opportunity arises to report them to the police in Israel. What else can be done in terms of, you know, you mentioned a lot of the educational benefits to the movie. There's child preventative education, educating community leaders, educating parents, keeping an eye out and reporting. What else should we be doing as a community? Like, So 30 years from now, there aren't new stories coming out from now. And that's an extreme case. It's just showing how that's an exactly the same situation as we are in now with a case like Chaim Walder. Do we see progress? 
I, I see progress. It's ponderously slow, but I see progress. You know, the thing that's most infuriating, and you mentioned the Chaim Walder situation, the most that's frustrating to me is that at his Leviah, people were saying how wonderful he was. They were giving Hespadim, they were, they were eulogizing him in a way that made him seem like he was the world's greatest man. He had groomed the entire country for many, many years as such a wonderful individual. And he got all kinds of awards for being such a wonderful person. All the while, he was using that to cover his tracks, and he was abusing. So my recommendation is like all those things you mentioned. We have to educate parents. We have to educate children. And children have to be properly educated. That means they have to know how to label their private parts, not in a way that's a euphemism. They have to know that it's okay to report what something when something happened to them. They have to know who they can report to. They have to understand the difference between the word surprise and, uh, and secret. And they have to know why there's a difference. They should not be taught to allow them to keep secrets. If their teacher tells them, I have a special secret that I'm going to do with you, they have to tell their parents that this teacher said the word secret and it's not allowed. But there are all kinds of details like that that you can go into. But the bigger issue from my perspective is getting the leaders of the community to be willing to put their name to some of this and, and deal with it in a more open way. You know, I, I still get occasional threats. I don't, at this point, I don't really care. And I never truly really cared. Part of that was because I have a strong, supportive family who believe the same way I do, also involved in healthcare in, in different ways, and people who understand the importance of protecting others. But somehow we have to put pressure on the leadership in those communities to be more open, to put their names to preventive programming, and to uh, assume responsibility for the things that they have to take responsibility for, which means to teach that there are abusers, there will always be abusers, and we have to find them and out them as soon as possible. I believe everyone listening to this podcast right now knows somebody who may be not completely kosher, they know something or suspect something and never said anything. You're probably 100% correct. Please and a call lot of out. them. No, no, yeah. a lot of them try to pretend they didn't hear it because it's just too disheartening for them, too confusing, too painful for them to deal with. I mean, I've even had parents tell me, I know my child was abused, but I can't do anything about it. And, and the excuse is they don't want their child to be subjected again to an intervention with a, a court or, or, or even speaking to an attorney or a district attorney or anything like that which I think is just the opposite, because if you allow your child to get the proper kind of help, they will be validated, they will be protected going further, and, and into the future, they will know how to behave better. So, you know, a lot of people are, are upset by this, but they are, for their own reasons, withholding their upsetness to themselves, and they try to dismiss it, and that's a big problem. That's a very big problem. Going back to red flags and giving extra attention to campers or students, is there 
a kosher, quote unquote, way to do that? Meaning, are we just depriving the next generation of that acceptable and healthy amount of love because everybody has so much fear about being accused the wrong way? You know, there's an interesting issue with this as well. Teachers, rabbeim, coaches are instructed now never to touch a child, never. And I support that. Not because I think it's necessary 100% of the time, but even if it's necessarily only 5% of the time, it's the best thing to protect your children. There was, Zaka published something recently about a Rebbe at, he's a Rosh Yeshiva at a, at a school, a yeshiva, and he hugs and kisses all his Talmudim when they come in every day, uh, the first day of school. And, you know, on one side, that's, that's a beautiful thing. It really is. On the other side, I've had parents call me up and tell me, you know, my child snuck around the back because they didn't want to be touched by him. Does that mean the child was abused by him? I, I, I don't believe in being a Choshed B'Kshayim. I don't think I could accuse anybody or him of that. But there are plenty of children who are, don't want to be touched for whatever reason. And you've got to respect that, and you've got to support the child's right to that self-sense of, this is my Dalit Amos, this is my, my space, and I don't want to be touched in that space. And that's something we should be supportive of with children. There's another aspect to this that I, I just want to reiterate very clearly, and I give this example all the time in my talks because it comes up in a variety of different ways. There's another girl I saw in a school that had uh, been abused on a school bus and she, she had gone to other therapists, and nobody ever asked her why she was having these issues of not wanting to go on a school bus anymore. So I just put it out to her, and I said to her, well, what happened to you on the school bus? Did anybody hurt you on the school bus? So she looked down, and she said, the bus driver touched my cookie. So, you know, I knew what that meant, but I had to make sure we were talking about the same thing. So I said to her, did you tell your mommy? And she said, yeah. And I said, so what did mommy tell you? So mommy gave me another cookie when I got home and I told her. I called the mother in, and this is a girl who's about six or seven years old. And I said to the mother, this is what your daughter told me, that the bus driver touched her cookie. And the mother froze for a second, and then she started to cry. And I said to her, you know, you're going to have to teach your daughter more appropriate names for her private parts if you want to protect her. That is an important component, particularly in certain communities. You've got to be honest and open with your children. You don't want to use the, the more human terms that are the biological terms. Then use private part terms, but don't use euphemisms, please. Very important. Thanks for bringing that in. There are a few things I wanted to address. Okay, so back to the touching. And many, unfortunately, many survivors are abused by family members. So let's say it's a, a parent, right? What I've learned in parenting classes is that physical touch is very important. So let's say, okay, all teachers and counselors and no touching, parents, part of their job is to provide that physical touch so they grow up socially, emotionally healthy. But we, at some point, we have to address healthy touch and that it's okay. And we're not just going to do the same thing like we did with Sneas, where we just put everything under one blanket and not allowed, just like Adam did with Chava, which got us into this place where we are today, where you put something, you offer everything without explaining healthy and unhealthy touch. 
versus adults, teachers, counselors, aunts and uncles could never, should never, they're advised to never come into physical contact with their students, children. You're, you're touching on, on a topic that's very sensitive to me because it comes up in our practice a lot. If parents don't hug and kiss their children, their children are going to grow up stilted in, in ways that are very, very unhealthy. Parents must hug and kiss their children. They must. And it shouldn't end at any particular age. A, a pat on the back, a squeeze, a kiss on the forehead, uh, just slapping a give me high five kind of thing. The touch is important within families. And I'm also a big supporter of aunts and uncles if the child is responsive to that. If the child is not, then fine. But I think that there's got to be this cohesiveness within families. But it's got to be open. It's got to be in a place where the child feels comfortable and not coerced. While it is true that parents, sometimes mothers, abuse their own children, the likelihood of abuse is more so from a, an older sibling. We see this in larger families, not just in the from world, but in, in any family where there are significantly number more than about five to seven children, older siblings sometimes abuse, are more likely to abuse younger children. Um, that's something that has to be watched out for. Uh, that's something that needs to be addressed immediately. And unfortunately, I think, I, I don't know that there's any solid research on this, because I've never seen it. When there are so many children, um, parents are overwhelmed, and so they give responsibility to the older siblings to care for the younger ones. So much of the time, it works out just fine. But if there's a child who's an older sibling, who has a tendency or desire to abuse, giving them the responsibility for the younger sibling is kind of opening the door to allow them to abuse. So, you know, that's something that has to be very carefully monitored in large families. Now, I know people are going to say I sh that I, I said you shouldn't have large families. I am not saying that. I was just going to say that. <laughs> I am saying that, color kavod, you want to have a lot of children, that's great. I approve of that. I support that. Just act responsibly. Keep an eye on your children. Understand what can happen. You know, the converse of that is within families, you're going to see children of similar ages experimenting. That is not considered abuse if the children are within three years of each other. That's a technical and legal distinction that we make because children are naturally inquisitive. So if they're younger than roughly the age of six, and a six-year-old and a three-year-old are undressing near each other, that's not necessarily an issue. It's not something that should be encouraged. Again, I'm not encouraging that, but it's not something that we need to panic about. We just need to make sure that we explain to them that they have their own bodies and they have to be prepared to take care of their own bodies and not share their bodies with anybody else. The only people who they can share their bodies with is, is their parent in inappropriate ways and and a doctor when mommy or daddy are in the room with them. One more thing I wanted to bring up before we wrap up is in an interview I did with a Rabbi of Remy Zippel. Have you heard his name? I've heard his name, yes. So he mentioned something how nothing could have been done to prevent what happened to him in the sense of he knew what it existed 
the point he was making is that his abuser was so advanced. The abuser is always 10 steps ahead or two steps ahead. So whatever preventative protocols we'll put in, they're always two steps ahead of us. So how do you respond to that? I think his case is not necessarily unique, but I don't, dis- I don't totally agree with what he said. And the reason I don't agree is because if he had been educated at a younger age, he could have run away. He could have done something to protect himself. And he could have reported it immediately, which would have likely protected him even more. Any closing remarks? I know you've been on many podcasts, you've written many articles, published books. What is the message that people are not getting that's still getting you up in the morning to continue doing the work that you're doing? Could you give me an easier question? No, I'll tell you what gets me up in the morning in a good way. First of all, I love my work. If I didn't, I'd, I don't know, maybe I'd be playing in a, in a wedding band or something. I had two situations in the, just in the last week, and it's, I don't know, maybe Ashkaha practice because I was having this, where people I've worked with in the past who were survivors, one called me up to tell me that he's very grateful for what I did for him. And I had seen him about 15 years ago, and now he's a parent and he's doing all the right things with his own children. And that was very rewarding. And that, that, you know, that's like a, a boost of energy for me. And another one actually just knocked on the door one day of my house. I don't know how he found out where I live, but he knocked on the door and he told me, he called me at Sadik, which I'm not. And he, he, he gave me a nice little gift and to say thank you. So that's the kind of thing that really gives me the boost in addition to the fact that I love my work. But you know, the thing that wakes me up at two o'clock in the morning is the fear that I've heard something about someone who is an abuser and I, I'm in, stuck in a position where I don't have enough information to report that abuser and the parents who called me anonymously are not willing to take the next step. That's the thing that bothers me the most. That's what worries me the most. The sooner we get these parents on board educated, the sooner we have them educate their children properly, the sooner we get the leaders of the community on board doing the right thing, the sooner we can protect our kids better. That doesn't mean we'll be able to eradicate abuse. You know, you can go back. There's a case in the Gemara, for those interested, it's in Moed Katan, of a, a Rebbe who was probably an abuser. The, the Gemara is a little bit secretive about it, but the Ritva says that he was a sexual abuser. Rashi seems to apply that too. This is not new. You're always going to find abusers in the community. It was handled properly in the times of the Gemara. The person was told he can't be a Rebbe anymore, and he was excluded from community activities. We don't do that. We allow people to get away. We've got to learn how to do that. We've got to learn how to protect ourselves better. That's, that's my closing comment. We, and that's what I tell everybody. If we don't do that, the abuser is going to pick up and go to another community if they're outed, and they'll just keep abusing. And it doesn't just happen in our community. It happens everywhere. And I can attest to that, as I said, because I see people who are not Jewish, and they have similar issues. They need to do the same thing. When, when Lahavda, when the Pope comes out and says, there is abuse, we got to do something about it, but local priests deny it, they're doing the same thing our community is doing. If, if we don't get the leadership on board, 
we really have to do a real hard push for the community members to do something about it, for parents to do something about it, and to educate our children properly. And again, remember, an abuser doesn't just abuse their targeted victim. Their target is the community first, then their victim. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank Michael you. Solomon, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening until the end. Thank you for suggesting topics. Thank you for volunteering to share your stories. If you would like to join the WhatsApp discussion group, please message me and I'll send you a link to join. If you really like this podcast, and I hope you do, I hope you leave me a review on whatever podcast app you listen to, be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It helps a lot. And I wish you a Gmar Khatimatova, Gmar Khasimatova. See you next week.